Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Mani, your host, and today we are speaking with Zinnia Kumar all the way from London. Zinnia was born and raised in Sydney, Australia to Indian parents, and she's since lived in Hong Kong, China, Thailand, France, US, UK, and India. She's a published scientist in human evolutionary psychology and a former field conservation biologist where she worked with penguins, which we're also going to cover a little bit today. In 2019, Zinnia was named by Vogue India in the top 50 most influential global Indians list and is a recipient of the Rotary Youth Leadership Award. She is an established fashion model, having featured in Vogue, Elle, Harper's Bazaar, Wonderland, Paper Magazine, Tank Magazine, Imprint, and many more major fashion brands commercially. Zinnia's personal breadth of expertise ranges from inclusivity, sustainability, fashion and media, empowerment, industrial, organizational, and business psychology, education and decolonizing and deconstructing beauty and racial identities and dogma. Today, we will cover all of aforementioned interests. Colorism is something that is very rarely talked about in diversity discussions. We know that representation in media is important, but getting diversity and representation right is not as simple as just putting a person of color in an ad or a TV show and calling it a day. Consumers today are more sensitive to and savvier about what brands are making a sincere effort to connect with them versus when they are just trying to check the diversity box. And luckily, consumers are quick to call out brands out in social media for pandering or insensitivity. So we are going to be covering all this and more. You're going to want to listen to all the whole until the end. Um, as we dive into this really interesting and important conversation about colorism, about inclusivity, about the politics and the constructs of beauty, and you're also going to hear where the current constructs of beauty came from. And it's a pretty interesting and strange place. You're going to know it when you hear it. I started by asking Zinnia what she thought was the biggest misconception about working in an aesthetics-driven industry. I think it's that, that there's one type of beauty. Like so many times, I remember I was on a plane once in Sydney, traveling to London, and there was a lady there. she asked me, what do you do? And I said, oh, I work as a fashion model and a scientist. And her first response to me was, you don't look like a model. And because I was brown, I wasn't blonde. She was blonde herself as well. And she was telling me that her vision of a model is like a certain Eurocentric type. So I think when you work in an aesthetics driven industry like modeling or even 
as an aesthetician. It's really important to expand that definition of beauty and really challenge the biases of why we think beauty is a certain way or not a certain way. Because until we expand that definition, we can't actually deconstruct why we have that definition in the first place. For example, for many years, when scientific racism was quite big in the 1800s, a lot of scientists would say that dark-skinned women and men were less human and therefore more animal. And because of that, that was used as a way of showing that these particular groups or races of people were unattractive and therefore should be invisible. And it's unfortunate because a lot of those ideas are still present today in some implicit form or another. So I think it's all about making that definition inclusive. And I think that's, for me, one of the biggest misconceptions about it. But yeah, that's my perspective on it. Mm, and so manufactured as, as well. Yes. So- like, for example, right now, we're kind of being sold this idea of photoshopped beauty as a singular standard, you know, for many years, this was it. And only quite recently, in very small fringes of fashion, is that changing, but so singular still, really. Well, we are going to get much deeper into that later on. Now, you are an internationally recognized model, scientist, and colorism activist. Tell us about how you came to do the work that you do in all of the roles that you are in. I think it was completely random. Like I didn't set out myself to do any of these things. I did plan when I was five that I was going to be this amazing conservation biologist. And it was my childhood dream to work with birds. I love David Attenborough. I subscribed to every Nat Geo magazine. And I did get to do that. I worked as a conservation biologist with little blue penguins, water birds and terrestrial birds in Australia. And it was my dream to kind of be almost this militant conservationist saving songbirds from the clutches of the illegal animal trade. But then something happened and I got severely allergic to eucalyptus, grasses, melaleuca, cats, dogs, horses, rodents, quite literally everything I loved I was allergic to. And I'd get an asthma attack quite severe in the field. So I just realized I would not be able to do this as a profession anymore because I could probably die in the field. And that was quite sad because at the time I was a bit like, oh, this is my dream job. I don't know what to do. And I remember going back to the research center I was at and I was kind of trying to figure out what to do next. And there was this amazing project going on human attraction. There was a few other projects on mice and cancer, but you had to kill the mice and I just couldn't kill them myself. I wanted to take them home actually, but they wouldn't let me do that either. (laughs) So um, I started working on humans and human attraction because it seemed like something that was something I didn't really understand. So I wanted to know more about it. So I worked on hair color and facial hair in men. And then at the end of the day, we published those papers, but it just kind of felt like I was judging people because I was just like analyzing which is the most attractive level of hair on men or what's the most attractive color on women. So I kind of just went traveling for a bit and I was teaching English in Thailand under a Department of Foreign Affairs program. And while I was there, I had this beautiful five-year-old girl in my class and she always kind of kept to herself in the corner. And when I went over to her one day, because she had pigtails in her hair and I said to her, you look so beautiful. I love your pigtails. She just stared at me like no one had ever said anything like that to her before. And then she replied back with, I'm not beautiful because I'm not light skinned like the celebrities on TV. And, you know, when you hear a five year old being sold beauty ideals before she's even had the opportunity to make her own, it really kind of it really kind of makes you think, where are these ideals coming from? And then as I traveled through Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, India, I just saw this 
continual use of European or Russian models or overly light-skinned local celebrities on TV or on ads or billboards. And it just, I realized this problem was so much bigger when you have five-year-olds thinking they're not too beautiful because of the images they see. Anyway, I got really mad about it. So I wrote a proposal and sent it off to UCL and Oxford and my proposals were both accepted for details. And then I just started researching colorism in that way. And then how did modeling come to be? I was actually scouted in Australia, but when I went to the agencies there at the time, they kind of said, we only take Anglos or half Anglos. So I was kind of like, oh, okay, all right. If these guys don't want me, that's fine. I'm just going to go and study. So while I was in England, I got scouted again, actually. So I ended up signing with agencies in England. And yeah. So at the time, I think I was the first international Indian model of who was Australian. Wow. Yeah. And I bet the Australian scouters are probably kicking themselves now. <laughs> I have no idea, but it's good to see that they're really taking on more Indian women because before, you know, it was just Indian women who were all part white, who had green eyes or light skin. So it's kind of nice to really see some change, some small change somewhere. But, Mm. you know, it's still, where was that implicit bias coming from? Because it wasn't just obviously a singular idea that one person had was, is it our education system? Is it, where does this bias come from? Is it the media we consume? So I think all of these questions are really important to understand. That's kind of what really got me passionate about colorism and beauty advocacy. So what is colorism? So colorism is called discrimination based on skin tone. So in the current sense, the word applies mostly to darker skinned women. So women who are darker skinned are more exposed to discrimination based off people from within their ethnic groups. But I mean, I expand that definition so a little bit further out as well. So I don't think it's just within ethnic groups. I think it's between ethnic groups too. So for example, if you have a casting director that only picks light skinned people of a certain race, and not the dark-skinned members of that certain race. That's colorism as well. And in the past, I guess, yeah, in the past in India, actually, there was colorism against light-skinned people. So this was in 16th century India, where overly light-skinned people were considered to have leprosy or disease. So people kind of really stayed away from really light-skinned people. So it's kind of like these ideas shift and change in time as well. Yeah, so colorism is just basically discrimination based on color and it affects people economically, psychologically, socially and access to education. Yes. So I'd really love to hear your thoughts on activism for visible differences and hear about you, I guess, working within the industry, your insider perspective. What are some of these changes that may be happening or is there activism happening within that space if you felt that you've been able to shift some things since you have been working in the industry as well I mean I think because I'm a scientist I am super cynical and I will analyze everything statistically so my personal opinion is that in terms of the fashion industry and the media industry I don't really think much is changing I think the focus is on appearing diverse and inclusive without actually doing the maximum effort to being so. So currently there's this huge trend for creating dichotomous contrast of ethnic groups or body sizes. So for example, they'll have one really big model and then one really thin model or one really dark model and then one really light model in amongst the usual kind of Eurocentric, heteronormative, slim norm. And whenever anything that is outside of this particular norm is featured by a brand or a magazine, they will put double the PR and marketing out 
to ensure that as many people can know that they're doing that and that inclusive from their perspective. But when you analyze it statistically and the actual state of representation beyond these performative displays and a commitment every now and then, what you find is that there really isn't a great deal of representation. It's usually the same model or the same ethnic group over and over again. Like right now in Australia, America and the UK, there's this really big trend, which is just for white models and black models. And you have other races which are completely omitted entirely. So I'll give an example of this. So in 2016, when diversity really came to the front and everyone was kind of all about ethnic inclusivity, the top 10 fashion houses, for example, LV Hermes and Chanel, all featured ethnically Indian models in their show. So fast forward that to today in 2020, or the last show season, 2019-2024 winter, what you see is they've completely omitted all Indian models. And instead, they've doubled the number of black models, creating this visual contrast of inclusion by having this kind of difference of color being seen on the runway, whilst actually taking the minimum effort to actually do so. So, I mean... Is the absence of 75% of the world's races in a show considered inclusive? For example, like that's how I see it. Because black and white people and races only make up 25% of the world's population. So it's kind of like, I feel that the push for representation is just a two-way street right now. And it's hardly inclusive. Because if you don't see people of different races, how will you acknowledge them? And how will they feel visible? And, and I guess that extends out to beauty as well and different features. For example, when Winnie Harlow came about as a visible model, no one had really heard of Vitiligo and it was kind of regarded with mystery and suspicion. And now today, because we have seen her so often, she's become quite familiar to us and so has her condition. So we don't actually think twice about it. So I think representation in general needs to increase across the board because this, there really isn't much right now. You can't have one model who is different to the normal, whether it's skin color, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's skin condition or ability, and use that as your PR token to show that you are something when really there's no systematic change. Mm, it's such an interesting point. And I agree, like I see some of these brands using perhaps more diverse type models in their marketing campaigns, but for true inclusion, what's happening behind the scenes? Who is being hired or is it really just a token gesture to show that you are using some more people with different ethnicities in your marketing campaigns and that's it? Exactly. And I feel that that's where the real change can happen because if you have diverse teams, that what you end up having is diversity of thought. So people who grew up in a different culture and a different environment or under different social conditions in a different part of um, Sydney or Melbourne, they're going to have a different vision of what beauty is and how it can be created and marketed. And not only that, they'll be able to reflect their own cultures authentically in media. So, I mean, you won't have this problem of cultural appropriation. You won't have this problem of orientalism or tribalism where, you know, I guess Indian models are painted with blue faces and made to look like gods all the time by white casting directors and creative directors or where until quite recently African and indigenous models were always depicted when they were as kind of like these tribal figures in these very small outfits kind of playing on this idea of orientalism from the 1960s. So I'm glad that's kind of finished, but there's so much that needs to change and it's all systematic. 
Now, being a woman of the world, you've been fortunate to see many sides of the, well, not fortunate, disfortunate, I guess, to see many sides <laughs> of the cosmetic damage yeah, and chemical usage in products in different countries and continents. What have some of your observations been? You spoke earlier about a story of a five-year-old girl. Yeah, I think this is really interesting because there's two parts that play into this. So one is the actual chemicals in these products and the second part is marketing. So, I mean, I think the biggest misconception that people have been told is that skin bleaching is only a practice in foreign countries outside of the West. So outside of Australia, outside of America, outside of the UK. But what you realize is the same chemicals in these skin bleaches, for example, niacinamide, which is the active ingredient in India's very famed skin bleaching product called Fair and Lovely, as well as other chemicals such as arbutin and hydroquinone, are actually being sold to women just like you and me in supermarket shelves in Australia. But they're not being sold as skin bleaches, they're being sold as anti-aging and radiance products. So if you go through the ingredients list, most of the time you will find something that is being sold as a skin bleaching product in Asia, but in Australia instead. I'm not going to name any brands, but I mean, everyone go to your beauty cupboards and have a check because you'll be really surprised what you're actually using. And in Asia, what they do is they sell these skin, these same products marketed as skin lightening creams to dark populations. And they sell them this aspiration that they might reach the social privileges of European or white women in the West. And this is known as colorism. So they amplify colorism for profit. And in the West, what they do is they prey on European descent women who naturally evolved in colder climates in Europe, who now live in the harsh conditions of Australia, South Africa and America, which does accelerate skin damage because of the sun and the non-adaptation to UV. What they do is they really amplify this idea of ageism. So in Asia, they sell colorism. In the West, they sell ageism. That, you know, age is something to be erased. It's something to be removed. It's something to always stay in this forever youthful mode. And so these marketers, they prey on what women feel self-conscious about, regardless of the age or regional populations. For example, young women, they will use ads like anti-pimple products or skin smoothing products is what they will market to them. And they will tell them pimples are a bad thing. To older women, they will market anti-aging because wrinkles are a bad thing. To women in Asia, they will market that dark skin is a bad thing and you need to lighten it. So it's kind of quite universal, this idea of exploiting insecurity for profit because the reality is all of these things are beautiful. What's wrong with dark skin? What's wrong with wrinkles, lines and discolored skin? It's always been attractive. And I mean, you wouldn't love your grandmother any less if she had one less wrinkle. You wouldn't love your mum any less if she had one less pimple. So the reality is capitalism is selling us this story that's infecting our minds. And it keeps us bound by these extremely rigid ideas of beauty that are being sold to us for billions of dollars of profit. And we're seeing it everywhere in every landscape and in every age group, unfortunately. Exactly. And, and now we're and even... they're targeting men as well. So yeah. men and women and non-binary people, everyone's being targeted. I was just going to say, we're seeing this yeah. more men's consumer market, uh -huh. non-binary market has just started flourishing. And exactly. um, in some ways it's like, this is fantastic. We're, we're getting more diversity. We're getting more recognition or representation, but... Is that really what the intention is or is it just... Or is it the same product just repackaged as different yeah. like marketing? I don't know. Yeah. So it's very interesting. 
So talk to us about your experience as a scientist and then linking that back to us as consumers, how consumers can navigate some of these kind of marketing ploys and, and this perception of beauty. Okay, so I had a paper that was published a couple of years ago, which found that when facial hair in men was rare, it was found attractive. And what actually ended up happening after I'd published this paper in a scientific journal, and there was a PR press release from the university that went out, a lot of journalists kind of picked up on this article. So there was one particular journalist who wrote an article which, whose headline was Bearded Men Are Loveless, and they cited my paper. And the irony here, <laughs> yeah, they were saying that bearded men are loveless, that women uh, find bearded men attractive, which is nothing. We didn't even find that. So I don't even know where on earth they got this idea from. And I remember reading it and I was so confused. And I was like, is this what, what happens when science papers get like, you know, consumed through the journalistic lens? And then I had a chat with my supervisor about it and he said time and time again, his human attraction pieces would be kind of almost hijacked and reinterpreted for whatever purpose. And most of the time you really have to critically analyze the sources when you read something like this. If it's sensationalist, it probably is. So you have to analyze the sources. When you read something, do something what is known as an epistemological analysis. So this is the analysis of theory. So you should think about who wrote the article, where did it come from, what was the motive and is the source site that's cited within it the same as what the piece contains within it? So, for example, my piece found that facial hair was rare in men, was considered more attractive. And this article said that bearded men were loveless. So it's quite interesting. You really have to question everything until you feel it's been proven to you. And it's really hard, especially today in this world of so much fake news and instant information. Like we're being bombarded with information from every angle, whether it's newspaper, Facebook, Instagram, and probably even your WhatsApp messages. People are probably sending you pictures with like writing on it. So it's really important to question everything, especially today, because it's getting really difficult to navigate what's real and what's not. And quite often I will see this kind of like sensationalist articles about beauty. So for example, I guess 90% of the time I'll see something written by either a plastic surgeon or another type of apostation, which will have a headline of something like science says big lips are attractive. And then they reference a particular celebrity. And then you read the piece that they wrote about this new science. And what you realize is it's just an ad for a procedure, how much it costs, where you can get it and why it will make you attractive. So it just reads as a business pitch kind of disguised as an article. And, and I think this is a little bit misleading because as human evolutionary psychologists who, who have analysed faces, we know that average face is attractive. And when you have a particular unusual or strangely large feature on a face that would otherwise be considered ugly in society, it actually makes that face even more attractive. And in France, this is called jalilet, which means ugly, beautiful. So what you see, you see this in women kind of like Audrey Hepburn and Kate Blanchett who have large, unusual noses. You see this with Angelina Jolie with her large lips. You see this with Mila Kunis with her large eyes. And because those features are in isolation and in balance with their faces that they were kind of born with, it, these features become quite alluring. But there is this trend for capitalism within the aesthetics and beauty industry, which I feel 
where men, women and non-binary people are being sold this idea that having all of these singular features of these different celebrities, for example, Kate Blanchett's nose, Angelina Jolie's lips, Mila Kunis's eyes on a single face will make you attractive. But the reality is when we analyze these faces, it actually does the opposite. It makes you unattractive and less attractive. And the same applies to men as well. When you take a man who hasn't had any artificial enhancements on his face and then artificially enhance his masculine traits in his face, like a stronger jawline and a stronger nose from what he naturally already had, he too suddenly becomes unattractive. So, I mean, I think it's really important to know the differences and why these things kind of really come into account of beauty and how beauty is kind of processed in the human brain. Because it's important to keep things natural because regardless of what we found was that when things were kept natural or not to a caricature level, the brain recognizes that as beautiful. And when you overdo something, the brain somehow manages to pick up that something's been enhanced. And when something becomes like a common trend, for example, big lips, everyone gets big lips. And then that becomes oversaturated in society. That trend will shift as well. So beauty trends are kind of always moving. So the only thing that kind of stays is inner confidence because that is something no one can take away and when you find yourself attractive other people actually find you attractive too so it's kind of this really interesting psychological way of working with things i recall i guess it was when smartphones were kind of coming out or maybe i first discovered zoom and these new apps on phones and they could make your face look symmetrical there was all these Mm. different articles and things about symmetry of face and how unhuman you look when you've got that symmetry which is interesting because often Mm. when someone is undergoing a lot of procedural work they might wish to look more symmetrical and and while a certain level of symmetry that is naturally occurring of course is beautiful it does get to a point where it does become unrecognizable by the human Mm. eye Yeah, and I think there's so much about the human eye that we don't know about. And it's so good at picking up these fine differences. For example, you know, when people get Botox, the brain can pick it up straight away because it recognizes it as something because, you know, Botox paralyzes the face. So what it does, the brain is it recognizes that there's a level of paralysis in this face. And it's kind of an alarm message, which would normally be a signal for health, which would be like, Normally that would be reserved for people who suffered a stroke or kind of a neurological condition. But it's very interesting how it is able to recognize and really amplify these things in our head without us even knowing that we're doing it. Mm. In a podcast episode you did with Kautu Clothing, you said what we see most often becomes familiar and what is familiar often becomes attractive. We've touched on this a little bit, but in Mm. recent times we've seen an increase in brands pledging that they will be more inclusive in their marketing efforts. So I guess this comes back to what we were talking about before of symmetry of face, changes Mm. of either enlarging lips and changing nose and things like that. Do you think that visual representation is enough to make a real shift And if we are seeing perhaps more models that look more natural and they don't have the Photoshop, do you think it's enough to actually start making a a shift psychologically and even in our actions? I guess on a, like to expand that question further out, I mean, I think the education system needs to recognize and really teach 
about differences in people and what they do and what they have about them. For example, I work for this charity called Think Equal and what the aim of the charity is to do is to kind of destigmatize the way we see beauty and the way we see all of these sources of discrimination, whether it's inequality, race or colorism. And what we don't realize is that our current education system is so based on these old ideas of what is beautiful, what's not beautiful with these prejudices and stereotypes of different people and different races that we kind of, without realizing, are teaching the next generation these prejudices as we go. And it's really important to kind of really address that right now. But I mean, in terms of the fashion and marketing shifts that you were talking about, I think it has the potential to to create quite a lot of change. I don't think it can solve the problem, but I do think it can create a lot of change because casting directors and marketing directors don't actually realize how powerful they are. A single selection and proliferation of beauty can change the course of beauty in, in a society forever. For example, when casting directors decided to select something that was outside of the norm that means people who kind of related more to that thing that which was outside of the norm would feel more represented but at the same time i think it's also really important to increase something like ethnic representation and this is because right now it's at such low levels that it's creating this thing called the other race effect in people's brains so when people like me or you might look at a particular race that we haven't been exposed to most of our life we can't actually subconsciously tell the fine nuances that tell people a part of that particular race. So, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, I myself as a brown person sometimes hear things like, oh, you look like Princess Jasmine or Priyanka Chopra, or sometimes Asians will hear people say to them, all Asians look alike. But I think it's our responsibility in society to be aware of these psychological implications of a lack of representation and really increase that in media and TV. Because if people of those particular ethnic groups are not visible at all, people like me and you can't actually see them or their facial features. And then we kind of continue living on this implicit psychological racism without we don't even know we're doing. So, I mean... I'll give you an example of this. I mean, myself, I, when I went to university in Sydney, because I grew up in a very multicultural suburb, I didn't watch TV. This is probably why I didn't actually, wasn't able to do this. And then when I went to uni, I couldn't tell the blondes apart. And it was a genuine problem in my brain. Like I would get the names wrong. I was convinced I just spoke to one lady when I hadn't spoken to her. And it was just really confusing and bizarre for me because I just couldn't tell the fine nuances apart. But after, you know, repeated exposure and meeting and kind of really getting to know everyone, I was able to learn the fine nuances of, you know, eyebrow, eyes, hair, like facial shape and that kind of thing. So it just really kind of changed the way I was viewing beauty. So it made sure I was no longer having this other race affecting. I was completely aware of what it was that makes the fine nuances of a particular race stand out or not stand out. And I mean, when you go into the psychology of this, by the age of nine months, if a baby is not exposed to ethnic diversity, it actually cannot recognize the differences and the fine nuances of different races, except their own. So, I mean, it starts at this infant level. And if infants are not exposed to diversity, we all kind of aren't as well. And how important is it? I'm just thinking, you know, as a child, I grew up in a, in a small country town, Phillip Island, Mm. and we didn't have any cultural, beautiful place. And and it's changed a lot now, but no cultural diversity. Our school was small, so we didn't have any really 
disabled children at school either. Mm. And I agree with you that it, like, I, I think it takes this self-reflection to realise maybe as an, an adult or a young teenager that you haven't realised that you haven't had any of that experience, mm. but it is something of our own responsibility that we must take on ourselves if of we course. haven't experienced it ourselves. And, and you're talking about not being able to even see these nuances in a face of someone from a different culture but Mm. if we can't even see that how are we going to see the beauty because exactly exactly because it's not familiar exactly and there's these different perceptions of beauty in other cultures uh, in different times and they've changed throughout Mm. the ages and and we were talking in our pre-interview about Mm. how beauty is becoming more uniform We're, we're starting to look for this some form of beauty that is all looking the same i'd really like to hear a little bit more about maybe some interesting perceptions in other cultures of beauty that you've experienced Going on from that point, what I also found is that when people who are experiencing the other race effect travel, for example, someone who says, I can't tell Asians apart, and then they go to East Asia and spend some time there, the brain naturally adapts and the brain can tell those things apart. So it's all about yes. exposing yourself to people from all different ethnic groups. And I mean, the media, it's, I think the media is responsible. They really need to up their game. Now back to your point of the homogenization of beauty. So I think today what's happening is because of the accessibility of the internet, TV, media, and kind of we can contact another country with the click of a button. What's also happened is beauty is also homogenizing all throughout the world. So for example, right now you can find the trend of contouring and false lashes in every single country and every single ethnic group across the globe. And, you know, when you think about beauty, even like 400 years before that, in Tudor, England, women would overpluck their hairlines, mostly from the use of mercury-based skin bleaching creams, which ended up receding their hairline. And at that very same time period in India, what was found attractive was dorsal humps in women. I mean, we call that today, I guess, quite derogatorily hooked noses. And, but in India at the time, in the 16th century, all the beautiful maidens and all the artworks all had this feature. So if you were a woman at the time without that feature, you would have actually felt quite unattractive. So, I mean, beauty's kind of gone from these localized definitions of beauty to becoming incredibly singular and incredibly homogenized. And I mean, I think for me personally, I think human attraction science kind of plays a role in negatively proliferating these stereotypes as well. Because I mean, when I analyze the waist to hip ratio, so previous papers have said, you know, this 0.7 level of waist to hip ratio is considered the most attractive. And when I went back and reanalyzed that, I realized this particular 0.7 was the ratio that most European women have. And that's because they have quite narrow hips compared to other ethnic groups and so it was a standard measure for eurocentric beauty and then so women who are for example indian or african they have wider hips and smaller waists so they automatically become on the smaller side of the waist to hip ratio and according to the way that measure works they immediately become unattractive which obviously we know is not the case we just need to be more exposed to these bodies to find them attractive so i think there's a really big issue of exposure to genuine diversity and genuine inclusivity, whether it's face, whether it's feature, whether it's skin condition or ability, because there really isn't much going on right now. It's all kind of homogenizing into this one 
heterocentric, slim woman. And a lot of the time, the features still remain the same. Even if you have a person of color, the features will still be very much aligned with the existing kind of Eurocentric levels of beauty. Yeah, we're going to get to the brands and industries in a moment, but I'd really Mm. like to hear, do you have any advice for consumers to ensure that they themselves are advocating for a fairer world and in this representation space? I mean, what I think about it is question everything, just absolutely question everything. When someone says something is attractive or not attractive, in particular, when someone says something is not attractive, like why is hairy armpits on a woman not attractive? (laughs) Some people would find that really grotesque, but the reality is we've just been taught to think that. So everything we think is ugly or unattractive has come from this kind of like patriarchal measures of beauty that were kind of instilled in the late 1800s, early 1900s of what a man is, what a woman is, and how to be more feminine, how to be less feminine. And these ideas still kind of pervade in society today that if we don't question it, nothing will change. We need to question everything and we need to really examine why something is considered beautiful and why something is not. So why is a big nose considered less attractive than a small nose when they're both just noses at the end of the day? So that's kind of how I really see this. It's about questioning. Yeah. Well, it doesn't change the function, does it? You're still smelling. (laughs) Exactly. It's just that one might have one particular feature or type would have been more visual in the visual media you've consumed. And therefore your brain has kind of processed this as being familiar. And once it's made it familiar, it's made it average. And once it's become average, your brain will naturally find that attractive. So it's about increasing not just diversity of color, it's features, it's sizes, it's everything really. Because Mm. until we do that, we're not going to be inclusive. Mm. We had Carly Finley on the show earlier this year and she has ichthyosis and she was explaining she's a visibility advocate or advocating for those with visible skin differences. And she made some really good points that often people with skin conditions are depicted as monsters. Like if you think about uh, cartoons and different types of movies and, and things, whether it be kids shows or horror stories, they're often people that have severe scars and they're a monster Mm. or they've got some strange, you know, unusual look about them. And while it might not be a direct correlation to a skin condition, it does Mm. depict people with skin conditions. And she was just made it really clear, I guess, that it's important that I guess what you're saying in regards to these noses and these different type of facial features, not only might not they be represented in the media, but on the opposite, they're represented in a negative way. So it might be the evil stepmother or it might be the scary person or the, you know, the the evil whoever on some particular Mm. show that has this particular facial feature, then, then we link this to something that we don't want to be near or that is not attractive. Definitely. And um, I've been kind of trying to trace the origin of this idea as well. And what I found is that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was this really big push for something known as physonomy, which was judging people by their facial features. So there were these kind of books with illustrations created with all of these kind of unusual things and features, for example, skin conditions or large noses or dorsal humps as being these negative traits. And then as I got more and more into it, it it actually came down to this idea of white supremacy in the sense that it was all about 
amplifying European features and faces that were like the standard of beauty at the time. So for example, people with Jewish features in one of the books that I'd read were considered evil, ugly, and unattractive. And you had artists like Walt Disney who read these books and basically used them on the basis of creating these characters that we still see in cartoons today. For example, you know, the evil witch stepmother, she was based off all of these Jewish features, which this particular book was saying made people untrustworthy, unattractive, and untrustable. So he was using this book and these particular features as the basis of all of this. And everything that was to be valorized was very, very Anglo-centric, very European, very kind of like fair-skinned and smooth-skinned. So these ideas of beauty and the way we kind of perceive them today kind of have these old histories which no one's kind of gone back to re-challenge. And that applies to all features and skin colors as well, as well as conditions. Because if you had a condition, you were the warty witch who was untrustable. Mm. If you had smooth skin, you were the princess in, for example, Cinderella. So it's just very interesting when you kind of get into how features today are still depicted with this, you know, 1900s lens. We need to really change that because there is no difference between anyone with a skin condition or without a skin condition. And I think it's really unfair that these people or conditions are only depicted when you see, I mean, I only see people with skin conditions on an ad, for example, a charity trying to get money for out of sympathy for those people. Like it's unfortunate that we don't see those conditions elevated in media or elevated in fashion as, you know, a powerful individual which is what it should be. It shouldn't be this kind of sympathy thing where you throw money at it and it just kind of does what it does. So I think that's really, it really is a systematic change that needs to happen because people don't really realize the inner biases they have towards all of these things. And it's so unfortunate that people have to live through this every single day of their life because no one is willing to go back and challenge it or change it because it's too easy to just keep it as it is. I think truth, the truth will set you free. You know, that old phase of that old saying. Uh, And it's just just come to mind now and just hearing about those books which I had no mm. idea existed. Yeah, most people have no idea. They're, I, I mean, I would suggest looking them up. It's called Physonomy and Characters, so it's very Yeah, where did you get your hands on these? I mean, they were vintage books. Um, I came across them. There was a, a vintage repository online and then I found a few at the uh, the University of Oxford Library and it was just it just blew my mind, so that's how I found it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think often education will help with when people don't know something, they might feel worried or scared Mm. or fearful. And often education can help ease that. But I think also truth, sharing truth can help set people free. And we were talking about some of these ideas of how we can make a shift and seeing that actually the source of where these things come from, just how they actually are and just lay them out that they were these white supremacy just made up things at the very beginning and then they've just been over amplified and created over and over and over again but we don't even know integrated exactly we don't even know that they've been integrated or where they even came from we just know that's what we find beautiful today Mm, I'm going to get my hands on those yeah Um, I I can send you some after this you'll love it (laughs) be amazing (laughs) Um, So we are going to shift gears a little bit. Recently, 
some big players in the industry have announced AI technology to essentially diagnose your skin type. Now, anyone that listens to the podcast, you know that I love technology. I love new apps, but this was a little bit concerning. This software basically provides a report that tells you how old your skin looks, how many wrinkles you have, how much pigmentation you have, etc. And just for some context, a friend of mine, she did this test. I think she might be 26 or 27. And the report came back that she looks 37 years old. Have you seen Terrible. these types of things in the industry? I'd really love to hear your perspective on what is happening. So I guess my perspective on it is at the end of the day, all of these technologies are designed to be marketing techniques. They're not actually designed to really analyze aging to the level you think or, you know, I think they will be. The, the original purpose of all of these things are to sell a product. So they will do that using any tactic they possibly can. I mean, for example, they've got the same technologies in Asia and they market it to dark women and they've been doing this for the last five or six years and so a woman will take a photo of herself it will analyze her face and it will show her how she can become lighter skinned and they then prescribe a product which will essentially solve her beauty dilemmas and in the west i mean i talked about this a little bit that shift is instead of colorism is aging and ageism where age is considered a big negative trait and I mean, with the particular AI program that you were talking about, that one, I, I looked into the back end of it and it was created in Europe. It was standardized using women in Europe who are not exposed to the hot, harsh climates like in Australia, America or South Africa and who experience accelerated sun damage because of the incredibly harsh conditions we live under. And then what they're doing is they're scientificizing and standardizing aging and beauty to the European level that they're found. They're not tailoring it for each market. So what's actually happening is people in different markets and different climates are using something that's designed for one climate and one market, and they're finding they don't fit into the box that is being sold to them. I mean, they're probably really not aware that they're doing this, or maybe they are aware. And as a result, what they will do is they will show you that you need to use a certain product which is what I'm sure happened to your friend they wouldn't have just said your skin is you know looking so much older they would have said hey your skin is looking older why don't you use this product maybe you can knock off a few years is what they would have said yeah we'll so I mean that for you just check out exactly exactly which is terrible when you think about it and I think the aim of AI right now is to sell you something you don't need I mean in terms of the particular beauty markets I mean, most of the time, I guess when it's to do with like skin color analysis and matching you to foundations and that kind of thing, it's fine. But I think when it comes to things like aging and analyzing aging, it's so different for so many people. People have different underlying skin structures and skin conditions. They've been exposed to different things. So how do you standardize something? You know, so these things are designed to make you feel inferior until you purchase the product which is being sold as the cure. And I think it's really important for people to remember that wrinkles, age spots, lines, dropping skin, these are all beautiful, beautiful things. And they will always be beautiful. It's just that we've been taught over time to hate these. And if we can be taught to hate them, we can be taught to love them. Mm. Like, for example, you wouldn't love your grandmother any less. 
if she had less wrinkles, you wouldn't love your mum any less if she had less wrinkles. The same goes for you. No one's going to love you any less if you have less wrinkles or less age spots. You know, don't let capitalism define your beauty because you are unique just as you are. You don't deserve to be pigeonholed into a box because someone wants to make, you know, a few mil off, off people like you. That's wonderful advice, Nia. Now, if time and money were no obstacle, what would you like to do to change the colorism and discrimination in the industry? I think I'd probably pass a law where beauty and marketing advertising has to stop telling people about what is not good enough about them, whether it's their skin color, wrinkles or pigmentation, lumps and bumps. I would just force them. If it's a sunscreen, that's all you, you can market it as. It's just to block the sun. It has to be quite specific, I think. If it's for dry skin, it's just for dry skin. Don't be saying it's for dry skin, fine lines and all this. Stuff. When the tests show that these products kind of really don't do much. And when you have tests on, for example, most of these products, when you read the fine print at the bottom, they only do tests on 50 women most of the time. They're not even statistically valid tests to prove that these things work. They should just be exactly as it is exactly what the product does and that's it because they're women and men and non-binary people it shouldn't have to have their self-worth defined by these tangible things because beauty and self-worth are both intangible they come from within you they like your spirit your drive your ambition so to put labels on people that they have to fit into because someone wants to profit somewhere i think is to me it's crazy it's just it just makes me mad to be honest so i mean that's what i would tackle if I could but I mean I can imagine a lot of these companies coming after me and trying to sue me so I don't know. (laughs) Do you have a message to the brands and industries that are still using these marketing tactics and manipulation aimed at people's insecurities? Stop because at the end of the day you're (laughs) making like just stop because you're making people at the end of the day worldwide no matter what country they're from amplify their insecurities through your tailor-made strategies for each people and each region and each kind of thing so i mean and people don't even know if these things are going to be potentially harmful in the future because sometimes you know you there isn't deep toxicological analyses of these chemicals until you know 10 or 20 years later when people start seeing these long-term usage effects so i think that they need to stop amplifying insecurities because it's not just affecting people's self-esteem there are people dying or committing suicide because they've internalized a lot of these insecurities that are being sold to them. You know, in in India, 10,000 plus women are murdered by their husbands or commit suicide each year because of the skin color based discrimination they face. And they internalize that. And I think no one should have to die because of an external beauty ideal that's not even authentic to them. Mm, Yeah. So what's next in the way of study and advocacy for you? Do you think it might tie in with your modeling and fashion industry? You know what? My whole trajectory of my life has been quite random, but I think I would probably tie in human attraction, representation, colorism, advocacy, a business and marketing psychology together hand in hand. And using this, I think I can combine them to create a genuine change through a multimodal platform. So right now I'm working on a documentary as well. So, but I think I would love to work on kind of a real analysis with companies of how to really make their brands or advertising really inclusive so it's not affecting people psychologically because right now I feel like it's um, anyone's game right now and it's just it's just a minefield and I think it's really unfair for consumers so I think I'd like to really change that in some way or form to like help people genuinely and help brands genuinely because they want to change too they don't really realize what's going on so yeah. 
Amazing. Well, I'd love to have you on in a few years' time to see yeah. how all of this <laughs> transpires. Yeah, because I think you will be making some big waves in the industry and looking forward to hearing more about this documentary. Is there anything that you can share yet or is it still? So it's a documentary based on colorism in India and it looks at the economic, psychological and social disempowering effects of colorism. And it's not just that, it goes into the histories of colorism. So everything we've always been taught about colorism and skin bleaching is false. It's kind of all been marketing. So that's kind of what I cover. And I follow some stories of women that have experienced this or have experienced loss from this and really kind of show the human element of this to make it make you really realize that it's that everyone is kind of human at the end of the day and no one deserves to be discriminated, whether it's colour or skin condition or body size or age. Mm, how wonderful. Well, congratulations. When are we expecting to be able to... Uh, um, <laughs> so it's probably going to be a next year and it will be on a platform. Yeah, that's all that's I can say. I can't say anymore. <laughs> Watch this space. Yeah. <laughs> Where can people find more about you and the work that you do? Right now, they could follow me on Instagram or Twitter. You can find me under at Zinniakuma, or I have a website, which is zinniakuma.com. And I mean, if you ever wanted, anyone wants to ever talk about beauty or beauty ideals, please contact me. I'm like totally willing to have a conversation with you and we can you know, tackle this thing together. Mm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for just sharing so much information, knowledge, experience with me today. It was actually, it was an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you. It was so lovely to chat with you and the amazing work that you do as well. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. What a an amazing interview. I must say, this has been one of my favorite to date. Zinnia is just such a wealth of knowledge, so passionate about what she talks about. And I could literally speak with her for hours. And I think after the episode, we almost did. But the three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me, it was difficult to choose three. I'd love to hear what yours were. But number one, physiognomy and characterization which was used in the basis of beauty, race, and racism, was actually a construct built in the 1900s in a book. We have put the book in the show notes for you to read as well. And Walt Disney based his characters off these books so you can now see the parallels between princesses and witches in accordance to the imagery shown. Absolutely shocking. Number two, Representation needs to be more than a token model in a marketing campaign. Are companies hiring more than one person of colour from different backgrounds? Is there diversity in the workplace or is it just on the forefront when you're actually seeing it on the public eye? Number three, while there is still a long way to go, this is about you guys, number three, (laughs) education, Um, is so important and I commend you for listening to podcasts like this. There's plenty, plenty more resources out there. You would have heard me say before, but I am so, so grateful to be able to connect with incredible people such as Ania, who is based on the other side of the world to have these meaningful conversations. Um, And I just also want to do a little shout out that beyond 
Zinnia's academic interests, she is currently working on a feature-length documentary which is combating colorism and a lack of representation of Indigenous women, which is leading to identity disparities and suicides. And she is working on a book about decolonizing beauty ideals and combating colorism. So you're going to want to watch her space. Um, her social media links are in the show notes. So go and follow. I'll be watching very, very carefully because I can't wait till these come out, but that's all that I know so far. Um, so thank you so much for joining us to listen to another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. Um, and we've recently surpassed 20,000 downloads. And I want to thank you for tuning in every week. We still have a while to go and I would absolutely love your help. So what I'm asking is, can you share this episode with two people? Share it with a friend, a colleague, a loved one. Simply send them the link, tell them what you've learned and why they will love it. Thank you. I appreciate it so, so much. Until next week, be skin powered. Well, 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 at the start of July, I made an announcement and that was announcement that if you share your skin empowerment journey or something that you learned from the podcast, we will be choosing one lucky winner each month to win a monster swag bag full of goodies. And today is the day of our first winner, which I'm calling out on air. And our winner today is Josephine Perugio. So I'm going to read a letter from Josephine. And then I'm going to tell you how you can have a chance to win a bag full of goodies next month. I just listened to the podcast, An Acne Journey with Emily Bolin, and related to her so much. I too suffered really bad acne as a teenager. It started from age 14. That is why I now do what I do. My mother at the time brought me to the family doctor. And recommended I started antibiotics. Well, I didn't want to do that, so I took myself off to the lo local beauty therapist and started having facials. I did everything she recommended, all the home care, regular treatments, changed my diet. It was a slow race, but I got there in the end. It has now been 30 years of treating skins and I love it more and more each day. Thank you for your podcast. I love listening to every episode. Josephine, kiss. Thank you so much, Josephine. I love hearing your story. And you are the lucky winner of our first Monster Swag Bag giveaway on the Heal Thy Skin podcast. So you'll be having a swag bag full of goodies coming your way very, very shortly. If you would like to be in the running to win a swag bag full of goodies from our sponsors, then all you need to do is send an email to info at dermhealth.co. In the description or in the heading, name My Skin Powerment Journey and tell us what have you learned from the podcast or share your journey with us. And at the end of each month, we will be announcing a winner. So snap, snap start writing and I can't wait to share your story soon. Bye for now.